which organizations and individuals do you think are doing the best or worst jobs in responding to a crisis? I'm Edward Siegel, author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. I'm also a leadership strategy senior contributor for Forbes.com, where I cover crisis-related news, topics, and issues. My guest today is Constance Derricks, a crisis management and leadership consultant. She'll tell us who she thinks deserves to be in a crisis management hall of fame or hall of shame and why. Well, thanks for joining me today on Crisis Ahead, Constance. Thank you. Thank you. It's really a joy to be with you. I'm looking forward to it. Of all the companies and organizations and even high-profile individuals who have had to deal with a crisis, there surely must be some who stand out for the good, bad, or sometimes incredibly ugly ways they've responded to a crisis situation. Uh, Would you agree? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And many of them are in public. So when they do well or do terribly badly, um, people know about it. I'd like to read you the names of uh, some well-known people and organizations, both in the private sector and government sector. And I'd welcome your thoughts about whether uh, they did a good job responding to their crisis and if they should be in the Hall of Fame or Hall of Shame. In the academic world, does any college or university come to mind for membership in a Hall of Fame? Well, I think... um... There, there are a number of academic institutions now that are in the news because they are sort of caving into um, protests on part of the students that say, we don't want to hear this speaker. We don't want that person coming because they have a political or philosophical point of view that's in uh, opposition. But I think Rutgers, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Rutgers recently that basically said to students, um, uh, oh, you want to make sure that we warn you when we're going to have an upsetting or controversial discussion? Is it was it Rutgers, Edward? I think it was Cornell. It was Cornell. Oh, you're right. It was Cornell. Um, and Cornell basically said, "Yeah, that's that's too bad. This is a university." And so that's people have to take a stand. You know, and I mean, I'm a fan of higher education. I got a lot of higher education myself, which I'm super grateful for. And I think we have to learn to tolerate ideas we don't like. We don't have to tolerate being spoken to in disrespectful or aggressive ways. But we, if you're not listening to ideas other than your own, I don't know why you're in a university in the first place. So it's important not just to have principles, but to uh, stand up for them and to defend them whenever they're challenged or, or questioned. And that uh, that's a good thing to do, right? Absolutely. And I think that not only do you have to stand up for them, but you have to be prepared to share your reasoning. Um, you can't just say, you know, I had freshmen in my classes when I was teaching and they'd say, well, that's my opinion. And I'd say, okay, you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion isn't persuasive. Say more. Give me your, tell me what your rationale is. Tell me what, what you've learned or what you've read or what you've experienced that, that would help make that more credible to someone that isn't accepting what you're saying yet. 
But when you stand up for your principles, uh, even though you might not be agreeing with some people, you run the risk of turning them off and having them oppose uh, you because of what you stand for. Uh, to, right. But that's part of uh, standing up for your principles. You have to take take the fallout, and no matter what people say against you, you have to stick by your guns. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And I think that the um, you know part of the culture that we're in now, where people try to get likes and, and approval on social media platforms, you know, we need to remember that no matter how admired we might be for our ideas, our thoughts, our work, our relationships, that not everyone's going to like us. And trying to make everybody like us is a fool's errand. It's just, it's just never going to happen. Of course, some government agencies have been in the news recently because of various crisis situations. Uh, what do you think mm -hmm. about how the Department of Transportation has been responding to crises? Well, I think there's some good and bad in in the department. Um, and uh, I think when the uh, train derailment in Ohio happened, unfortunately, Secretary Pete, as we, I think we're, most people call him Secretary Pete, he was Mayor Pete, now he's Secretary Pete. Um, I think he made a mistake. Um, he, the Department of Transportation people apparently were on site right away, as you would expect. But people in the community want to see the face of an agency like that. They want that person to show up. When there's a natural disaster in the United States, people want to see the president. They want to see him show up in not just a ceremonial way, in sort of a perfunctory manner, but they want to see pictures of that person talking to people. If Pete Buttigieg had shown up and we had photos of him, you know, leaning in as he does. I've met him. And when you speak to him, he really engages with people as though no one else is, is in the room. And then he goes on to the next person. I met him in a receiving line, so I didn't get, I didn't have an hour with him or anything. He's very good at that. And it was a missed opportunity. However, the other thing that they've done recently, which I think is terrific, is they've put out these videos showing all of us, after all, that's where the government gets its money, right, is from us, showing us what's happening with our money, you know, bridge um, improvements and uh, projects on Native American reservations and things like that, and showing us that there's money being spent on infrastructure, which seems really important to me, and also something that the federal government is uniquely capable of doing. So I say, you know, too bad on the Ohio train derailment reaction and good for you on the, on the recent videos. Were those videos an effort, do you think, to be proactive and launch essentially a communication inoculation campaign to ward off any negativity about the infrastructure? Or do you think they were responding to criticism about how much money was being spent to repair the nation's uh, uh, bridges, highways, and other parts of the infrastructure? Well, the answer is I don't know. Um, but I do know that production of videos like that takes time. So my, my, if I had to guess, I would say that they were thinking about how to show the American people what they were doing with our money what are the good things they were doing with their money and that it it's possible that they that the timing of them 
could be interpreted as uh, trying to uh, shiny up their image after the, the, the mountain of criticism they got after the train derailment. Um, but, but the answer is, I don't know. And the more philosophical view I take, which is, you know, you and I got connected because of my book, which recently came out, Meta Leadership, where I talk about dichotomous thinking. And, um, you know, these agencies of the federal government are run by human beings and they have good things about them and bad things. And we try to corral the worst in people in politics and we try to highlight uh, the best. But I think the Department of Transportation is a super good example of, you know, a misstep, probably earned criticism, and then some other things that they've done well. Let's drill down then, if it's okay with you, to talk a little bit more in depth about Hall of Fame and who should be in sure. there. Uh, of course, to my mind and mind of a lot of people, uh, Elon Musk uh, is a top contender. Uh, do yeah. you think he should be in the Hall of Shame and why? Uh, I think that Elon is, is one of the best examples of, um, why dichotomous thinking is problematic. He's visionary. Uh, he's a creator. He's got money to invest. But I think the thing that's shameful about him is that he's so impulsive. You know, he shoots his mouth off. Uh, he got in trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission for saying he had funding, for a deal that he didn't have funding for. So I think that his impulsiveness is a serious detractor uh, to the to the benefits of him. I, I do want to say that he recently named Linda Yaccarino as CEO of Twitter. And Linda is a very experienced um, person. She was the chairman of um, NBC Universal, responsible for their advertising revenue. She has a terrific reputation. I've met her and spoken with her, and she is as uh, mature and controlled. She's sort of the opposite of him in that way. And yet, on a stage in Miami, she interviewed him, and she went toe-to-toe with him very credibly. So I got to give Elon credit for choosing her. We'll see how it works out. So maybe the answer to dealing with some crises is, don't deal with it yourself, or if you d- do create a crisis, bring in someone else to uh, to clean it up. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and then don't get in their way while they're while they're doing the cleanup. We yeah, I think she's got a lot of lot. There's a good chance that she can restore Twitter if they if their relationship is going to work. That is pivotal in this case. We mentioned earlier in our conversation today the Department of uh, Transportation and what they've done right or what they've done wrong dealing with the crisis. What do you think about the uh, another federal agency, the Department of Defense? Oh, well, <laughs> the uh, Department of Defense snafu. Oh, God, that, that's, that's putting it mildly, right, where they had a a guy who was leaking, uh, you know, removing classified documents and leaking them. I think What's shameful about that, and I think DOD knows this, however, again, run by human beings, is sometimes leaders forget that very great threats and risks that lead to crisis come from insider threats. This is a case of an insider doing something wrong 
And uh, it sounds like, if, if what I'm reading is correct, that they had the opportunity to stop this person before it got that far and, and didn't. So sometimes, you know, denial gets in the way or minimizing or rationalizing. And, you know, you know this, Edward, from the work you do, minimizing, denying and rationalizing something that truly is a danger will will definitely take you into a crisis. And perhaps it also could be attributed to a failure to have a um, active, healthy imagination for the worst possible things that could go wrong for a company and organization and take plans to uh, to deal with those uh, nightmare realities uh, um, if they come to pass. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the limitations of uh, of strategic planning is that strategic planning is done by human beings. And that imagination of, you know, how do you imagine the unimaginable? Well, you, you have to try. You really have to try if you're leading a big organization or if you're leading a small team, you got to do that. What do you think about Wells Fargo in the finance, in the banking sector? How have they done? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. They, they, they're on my perpetual hall of shame. They are just, you know, what happened with the, um, in the retail banking sector when people were pressured and her, probably harassed is probably not too strong a word, um, that, you know, if you worked in the retail banking sector, in the customer-facing roles, now let's remember, these are some of the lowest paid people in banking. These are not people being paid million-dollar bonuses. And yet you're supposed to encourage people to open accounts. They weren't just encouraged, they were pressured. And if the news is correct, they were threatened. Um, it all came to light. Um, and I believe it was just last week or so that it was announced that there was a more than $1 billion or about a $1 billion uh, payment that was going to go to people that had been affected. But I... The, the crisis prevention that could have happened but didn't, and this is on John Stumpf and the woman who was leading retail banking, was that sector at Wells Fargo was outperforming their peers in banking. And they sat back and said, oh, great, you know, pass the champagne. Isn't this wonderful? Well, leaders have to pay attention to things that are disparate, whether it's bad something has deteriorated or something's not up to the peer group, the comparison group, or sometimes good results um, are covering up things that are going wrong. And so leaders have to interrogate. And let's just say this too. If something really good is happening in your company or your division, your department in the government, something is great and you interrogate, interrogate it, not not to find something wrong, but just to learn. You might learn that there's a group of people doing something exceptionally well and you can replicate it. I've seen that happen too. In the case of Wells Fargo, it was, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And, um, you know, Mr. Stone Fright richly deserved to lose his job over that. So the challenge is to find ways, find out what your successes are and duplicate yeah. those and find out what your failures are 
and uh, do your best not to duplicate those. Yes? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. But what it means is the leader has to be paying attention to everything. Can't just shrug and say, oh, isn't that nice? We're all going to get bigger bonuses. Yay us. (laughs) You have to find out. Of course, Bed Bath & Beyond has been in the news uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, None of them good. They just recently Mm -hmm. uh, declared bankruptcy. Uh, What kind of job do you think they've done and why do you think they deserve to be in the Hall of Shame? Well, I think that they were um, blind for too long. This is probably a case of, um, you know, I'm not saying that this was willful. It's so interesting how humans can, you know, we're judging people from a distance and saying, oh, well, they should have known and they should have done e-commerce and they, you know, they've been criticized for being slow on the uptake with e-commerce. But it it does look like a case of completely asleep at the switch. The other thing about Bed Bath & Beyond is you don't have to be a genius to have seen that that was a, a company in decline. You know, we had a location about four miles from where I live and I went in there once or twice a year. And the last time I went in there a few months ago, I went, uh-oh, this is bad. They didn't have inventory. The store was a mess. They don't have enough people working in there. If you're on the board of a company like Bed Bath & Beyond, it is your obligation to visit Bed Bath & Beyond. You, If you're on that board, you are not in the demographic of the average customer of, at Bed Bath & Beyond. That's not going to be your go-to store. But if you're on the board, you better have yourself in the stores occasionally um, one CEO that I advised to visit the locations of his company, he said, oh, I can't do that. And I said, why? And he goes, well, people will know me. And <laughs> I leaned over his desk and said, I, I got to tell you something. A lot of the people that work in your company will not recognize you. And he couldn't believe it. And he said, wow, I guess I was a little full of myself. I said, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the people on the front lines in a retail store, they don't necessarily know what the CEO looks like. I'd like to end with another example in the corporate world. We have any sure. opinions about uh, General Electric and why they should be in a hall of shame? Oh, my goodness. Well, General Electric, that's that's a company that's a good example of if you and I were doing this call a couple decades ago, we would have had them in the other category. Do you think? Why? I mean, I'm thinking they would have been, right? They were doing great. You know, they had the financing business going and uh, they got into long-term health care insurance, which turned out to be a bad move because guess what happens when you when people buy long-term care insurance and they get long-term care, they live longer. And so it <laughs> throws off your actuarial tables and you end up taking on more risk quite unwittingly. So when uh, Jack Welch retired and they named his replacement, Jeff, I'm out, you know, big fanfare. Bob Nardelli didn't get the job. He came to Home Depot. Another guy didn't get the job and I think went to 3M um, as CEOs. Uh, But under Jeff's leadership, uh, the share price declined precipitously over time and the board kept him in the job a long time. In fairness to him, 
there were some headwinds not in his favor, not the least of which being this long-term health insurance um, thing that turned out to be a big problem. And I believe they're no longer in that business. But I would say, again, it's a failure of paying attention and uh, downplaying the long-term seriousness of it. And, you know, GE stock has just plummeted over the last few years. I don't remember the percent it's declined, but it's been, it's, it's just been pretty terrible. And I guess the worst is, um, I don't know, I don't know, it could be, maybe a financial analyst could answer this. I'm not sure if they have a good story to tell yet. But you, you, if you're going to do a turnaround and have people believe, you have to give them a reason to believe. I'm afraid we're almost out of time today, Constance. Of all the examples that we've talked about today, what's the most important thing you'd like to remember about these Hall of Fame or Hall of Shame nominees? Uh, the most important thing that I talk to my clients about is that leaders cannot afford to get all their information in the same way from the same people all the time. They need to act like explorers in their own territory. If you're the CEO of Olive, or you're the president rather of Olive Garden restaurants, you need to be eating in different Olive Garden restaurants throughout the year. You need to get on a plane and go to a different part of the country. You have to pay attention. You need to get information from outside your own company, but it's all about being a perpetual learner and being skeptical. I don't mean cynical and nasty and aggressive, but be skeptical about the information and ask good questions. That, that alone, that just paying attention and getting information more broadly would prevent a lot of crises. Thanks again for being with me today on Crisis Ahead, Conscience. I appreciate you being with me. Thank you, Edward. That's it for this edition of Crisis Ahead. My guest today was leadership expert Constance Derricks. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for, managing, and recovering from a crisis. Or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. Each week, I interview government officials, corporate executives, and experts who share their advice and insights about a variety of crisis management and crisis communication topics. Recent guests have included Jay Johnson, who's the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Isabella Guzman, the administrator of the Small Business Administration, and officials of the Department of Defense and Federal Emergency Management Agency. My guests have taken deep dives into a variety of topics, such as the crisis management lessons to be learned from HBO's succession, how to prepare for any crisis situation, and how members of the next generation of crisis communicators are being trained and educated. And be sure to follow me on Forbes.com, where I'm a leadership strategy senior contributor covering the latest crisis-related news topics and issues. For more information, visit my website at publicrelations.com. Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you are prepared for it, the better. Produced by HeartCast Media.